You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The idea that we're all born equal and we all should have an equal opportunity for salvation as well um, comes into play. The issue really is that this is human-centric thinking. So um, uh, if you're a humanist, if you believe that um, humanism, human morality is all that counts, then these are pretty logical conclusions to come to. But it is, as I said, human-centric thinking. So the idea that the universe revolves around humanity, um, that humans are sort of in control of their own destiny to a certain degree, Um, The idea that God is either non-existent or uh, uninterested in what happens on the earth, perhaps. Um, All of these ideas feed into uh, some of these questions. And as I said, questions about suffering lead to further questions about salvation generally. So the human perspective assumes that there is no God, no higher morality than what we can sort of conceive in our own minds. Um, And the idea that everyone's born equal no one deserves to suffer more than anyone else. Everyone is born equal. So that's sort of the foundation statement of the US uh, Constitution. Um, and then, of course, if there is a God, why, why doesn't he save everyone? Why, is not, why doesn't everyone have an equal opportunity for salvation? You know, there's generations of, you know, for example, Chinese people who had no idea about the Bible for hundreds of years. Um, why doesn't God you know, save them? Is that uh, not an unequal treatment? But the Bible's message, of course, is being God's book and we're going to assume that God exists and that the, the, you know, this is his book tonight we're, and we're going to look at that message, uh, is that no, life isn't human-centric. Uh, life revolves around God, not, not humans. And we have to see things. What the Bible's trying to teach us is to see things from uh, God's perspective, not from a natural human perspective. So it's a different uh, way of thinking, uh, equally logical, but, but different, a different morality, really. So we've got two opposing philosophies really here. And the Bible's message is, you know, don't be self-centred, don't be human-centred, but instead be be God-centred. And we won't understand the purpose of suffering uh, unless we adopt God's God's philosophy and God's thinking. But many people have found these uh, ideas very challenging and and with good reason. The questions are, are good questions. Um, and, you know, one answer could be, well, um, you know, there's a God and he can do what he wants um, and, you know, you could really leave it at that. But that would be a pretty unsatisfactory answer for most people and fortunately the Bible gives us a lot more, you know, nuanced answer uh, within its pages so we can uh, have a look at that. So when uh, God started out or when uh, this uh, creation started out, we'll have a flick back to Genesis Um, chapter 1 and we'll see um, some phraseology here that explains what happened when uh, God uh, finished his creation or or made his creation and the phrase that that pops out for each of these you know uh, six days of creation is the idea that things were good so um, we see that in um, for example in Genesis chapter 1 verse 10 God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called his seas and God saw that it was good. And then again in verse 12, 
Uh, the end of that verse, God saw that it was good. Um, in verse 14, I think that's supposed to be. No, somewhere else. It was, yeah, we've got coming to 31. Uh, verse 18, uh, it was good. Uh, we've got it at the end of that verse. Verse 21, at the end of that verse. Um, oh, no, it is in verse 4. It was good. Saw the light that it was good. Just got them out of order. Uh, verse 18, uh, verse 21, uh, verse 25. And then at the end of everything that is made, right at the, the sort of summation of everything in verse 31 of, of Genesis 1, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So uh, what we're left with at the end of you know, God's creation is a, an earth that is very good, um, and, uh, and that, that's how God sort of stops uh, after his creative work. So we've got uh, a, a world with no human mortality, for example, at the moment, uh, and certainly no sin at this stage. And then, of course, we know that um, um, God gives a law, and that's found for us in Genesis chapter 2 and verse uh, 16 and 17. You know, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of it. For, and there's consequences to this law. So God says, here's the law, and here's the consequences to that law. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So consequences, law and a consequence if they break that law. So Adam and Eve are given a choice, aren't they? And we're going to talk about that in a, a bit further on. But Adam and Eve are given a choice. They can either choose to obey God in this very good surrounding or they can choose to disobey God. And we know that in the end they chose to disobey God. And so what changes things is the sin of Adam and Eve. They chose to eat of the fruit of the tree um, of the knowledge of good and evil. So in a general sense, and we're talking in a general sense in humanity generally, suffering is the result of humanity's, in this case Adam and Eve's, sin. It wasn't part of God's original creation, but it becomes introduced into the world uh, as a result of sin. So when God finishes creation, it's all very good. Adam and Eve break God's law. And, and as a result, suffering is introduced into the world, and we'll see um, how that happens in a minute. So suffering isn't part of God's original creation, uh, but it is introduced as a consequence of human uh, sin, humans breaking God's law. So God has to weigh up a few things, doesn't he, as a result of uh, Adam and Eve choosing to uh, break his law. And there's really three elements, there's probably more than this, but three essential elements that um, God has to weigh up. So the first thing he has to weigh up is human free will. So God could have made the earth as a, uh, you know, with a bunch of robots in there, pre-programmed robots to always do what God says um, and left of that and then we've had a perfectly ordered world, perfectly ordered universe and uh, would have been all, um, all roses. But God didn't want to create robots, did he? Uh, he wants us, humans, Adam and Eve, and included, to have free will. He wants us to want to serve him. He wants us to choose to serve him. He doesn't sort of say, um, I can you know, pre-program you to you know, obey my will absolutely. He gave Adam and Eve free will. He gave them the, the option of choosing to serve him or the option of choosing not to serve him. So human free will is a really important part of, of God's creation. 
Then we've got God's love. So um, the idea that he, um, and whenever God's character is described, we will read about his mercy and his long-suffering and all these you know, nice words, goodness, uh, his love, his desire to save. Um, and he, he does want to save. Um, and his mercy and his love are part of that and a really important part and probably you know the, the overwhelming part of his character. So um, theoretically, God could say, well, you know, Adam and Eve have sinned, um, but, you know, I'm just going to ignore that. Um, you know, we'll just ignore that and pretend it didn't happen and I'll, I'll still save everyone. Um, but, of course, then we have to balance his justice as well. So that goes against his justice. He's told them if, if you break the law, then um, death will be the result of that. Um, and that is part of his justice. So not clearing the guilty, once again, part of God's character. Um, and we know that sin uh, deserves death. So his other option, of course, was to wipe everything out and start all over again, I guess. Um, but that would have defeated his purpose uh, in creation. Um, and it's not like he this was some big surprise to God. God knew exactly from day one exactly how this was going to pan out, and he had a plan uh, set in motion for all of this to happen. But they're the three things that he has to sort of balance out, human free will, his own love, and his justice. And all these things have to feed into his plan for salvation. And his plan winds up being that I will forgive uh, the sins of people that choose to serve me, basically, and I'll save them that way. But it's got to be human choice. We have to choose uh, to respond to God. So some uh, pretty, you know, sort of, I guess, fairly deep philosophical ideas we're throwing around here, but... Um, that's where you know this this uh, argument leads us. So the results of sin we can read through Genesis chapter three, which we're not going to do this evening, um, but they're found there in you know those uh, five or six verses. We've got enmity and hatred, disunity in other words. Um, so in verse fifteen, God puts enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So we've got some sort of hatred, which you know was not in the garden beforehand. So this idea of enmity, hatred, disunity is introduced. Sorrow and pain, so particularly that's those words are directed to the woman. Uh, in verse 16, um, sorrow in, in conception and bringing forth children. We've got toil and struggle, so that's particularly aimed at, at Adam in um, verse uh, 19. Um, and we've got death. So death is obviously a pretty um, important part. That's what God told them would happen uh, originally. If you break my law, then death will be the consequence. And he goes to some extent to point that out um, in um, verse at the end of verse 19. Out, out of dust were you taken, dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. We've also got the idea that um, humans will now sort of be inclined towards sin. Now, that's a little bit more hidden in, the, in this uh, language, but I think it's there in, in the lesson of the thorns and thistles. That's what naturally will spring out of the earth, the Adam, the Adama, um, and that will be our natural inc inclination from here, and I, we can talk more about that at some other time. Um, now, God doesn't sort of have a choice of giving Im everyone immortality. Um, so the idea of immortal sinners, again, goes against his idea of justice. So that would be sort of a, a moral impossibility for God to sort of have sinners on the earth but still say, oh, yes, you can live forever all the same. Um, and really that you know, sort of cuts right across the argument of an immortal devil to the idea that someone who's going completely against God's will uh, has immortality. But that's sort of uh, by the by. So 
sin brings consequences, and um, amongst those consequences are, are death, sorrow, pain, suffering, toil, struggle, all these things that uh, add up to human existence uh, today. So that's you know sort of the first point we want to bring out is that um, sin um, was the cause of human suffering today in a general sense. That um, if um, that Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, and as a result of that, um, we have the suffering in a general sense that we see in the world today. There's, this, is, this idea of suffering is dealt with in other books of the, of the Old Testament uh, before we come to the New Testament as well. And Job is the sort of the classic suffering glory and searching for answers amongst uh, people who are trying to work out why Job particularly is suffering. Now, Job is a, an answer really to the idea of um, what is known as direct retribution. In other words, God sends punishment um, for specific sins that we might commit, that humans might commit. You know, the old lightning bolt from heaven, if you, you know, swear or whatever. Um, that, that's this idea that, um, you know, humans break God's law and there's a specific punishment that God sends directly as a result of that sin. And the book of Job says, no, that's not how God works, basically. So um, we're not going to go through the book of Job, but Job... Uh, suffers hugely, um, his family's all uh, killed, he suffers the loss of all his uh, property um, through various disasters. And then his friends come to him and they say, uh, well, clearly you're suffering a heap. You know, we've never seen anyone. Oh, he gets you know, nasty boils and uh, illnesses as well. You're obviously suffering a heap, therefore you must be a great sinner. So the friend's argument is his friends, uh, you're suffering a lot, therefore you must be a very wicked person. So this idea of direct retribution, that, that Job's suffering is a direct result from his uh, sins, that they don't know what they are, but there must be a heap of them because he's suffering so much. Uh, so one of his friends, for example, in Job 22 says, you know, obviously because of all the suffering, you must have sent widows away empty. Uh, the arms of the fatherless uh, have been broken, therefore, snares are round about thee and sudden fear trembleth thee. So your life was all good before, but it's all bad now because, and there's this direct link, this therefore, uh, between what you must have done, sending widows away empty, you didn't give anything to, to poor people obviously, and now you're, you've got all this trouble happening to you. So your suffering is a direct result, direct punishment for your sins. And this is really a classic example of human-centric thinking. You know, that um, God, you know, the universe revolves around us and God is always sort of there, you know, pressing buttons and, and, you know, jabbing us when we do the wrong thing in a direct sense. Well, Job's response is, well, I know that I haven't done huge amounts of sin. I know that I'm not a great sinner and yet I can see that I'm suffering greatly. Um, so I don't really know what the answer is. I know that, you know, God exists um, that I'm suffering greatly and yet I haven't been a great sinner. So I don't know what the reason for my suffering is really, I guess is his conclusion. So he points out, you know, time after time that he was not a great sinner. And he talks about his own righteousness and things, for example, in Job 29. So I know that I'm not a great sinner, but I know that I'm suffering a lot. Uh, so what's the answer? Why am I suffering so much? And God's Finally, he ends the book, um, uh, you know, 40, 42 chapters, I think it is, 43 maybe, and um, he gives a response to both Job and to, and to his friends. 
And he says, no, the, the friends are wrong. It's not a matter of you know, me directly punishing someone for their sins. There are other reasons for Job's suffering. And it might include such things as teaching not just Job, but his friends about uh, God's ways as well. But God's main point is that I am in overall control. I'm directing your life, but I'm also directing the life of the billions of other people, or millions, I don't know how many there were back in Job's day, on the planet as well. So it's not just about you. It's not just about you personally, um, and uh, you need to realise that. So it's not just you you're, you thinking about yourself. It's not human-centric. Um, you need to have a wider view that um, I'm doing all sorts of things for all sorts of people um, all the time, um, and you're just one of them. So God says, you might not know what's going on, uh, but I am in control, and I do know what's going on, and it's all... Uh, for uh, a purpose, and that purpose is to reveal my character in, in, in people, and Job in particular, and his friends as well. So the book of Job, that's you know, obviously a very brief summary, but it does look into this idea of, you know, is suffering that we experience now a direct punishment from God? And the answer is no, it's not. That's not the, not the reason that, uh, that we suffer. Another uh, character in the Old Testament who looked at this idea of the human condition, I guess we'd call it generally, including uh, suffering, is uh, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we, you know, probably King Solomon, one of the more illustrious kings of, of Israel in, in the Old Testament. And he looks at life in general uh, and the purpose of life. Um, and he sort of comes to the conclusion that life's circumstances, including suffering, have a different purpose for two different classes of people. So he talks about people under the sun, So, and that's humanity generally. So obviously we're all under the sun during daylight hours. Um, and humanity generally, um, and for them, um, you know, the conclusion he comes to, and we'll look at a few verses about this shortly, is that life is vanity. It's, it's essentially empty. Um, it doesn't have meaning, in other words. Uh, for the vast you know, majority of people. Um, and he talks about the concept of time and chance. Um, so, you know, um, statistical anomalies, things happen to people, you know, good, bad, you know, which we might uh, put down to luck or otherwise, but stuff happens to people. Uh, this idea of time and chance um, happens and that idea plus the idea of human suffering uh, really reinforces, is there to reinforce the fact that life under the sun, general run of humanity, is vanity, it's empty, it's, it's meaningless. Um, so without knowing God, in other words, people who are under the sun generally, um, uh, life, uh, would, they're going to suffer, um, they're gonna, some people are going to have a good life, some people are going to have a bad life. Um, but it's, it's essentially to teach us that life is vain, life is empty without a knowledge of God. Uh, this brings us to sort of the idea of karma, you know, um, the idea that perhaps, you know, if you're good in this life, you'll get good as, as a response to that. And Ecclesiastes says, no, nah, that, that doesn't happen, and we'll see uh, examples of that shortly. Uh, but the idea um, of, in Ecclesiastes is... is what he calls people who can see the sun, um, those who know God, in other words. So he says knowing God is the solution to the vanity of life. And without that, uh, life is going to be vain, empty, painful for a lot of people. 
um, and and it's not going to be not going to be great. So the randomness of all the good and bad that happens um, is is part of that vanity of life. So um, Ecclesiastes chapter four uh, and verse one. Um, the, the writer says, I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So he's looking at, at life in general under the sun. So this is people, the general run of humanity who don't know anything about God. And he says, Behold the tears of such as were oppressed. They had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. So the idea that for, for a lot of people, life is, is a terrible thing. It's not, it's not an enjoyable thing at all. And, uh, the, and God is not unaware of that human suffering and all the injustice in the world. He's, he's perfectly aware of that. Much of it, but not all of it, uh, due to sort of human greed and oppression. So um, Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It doesn't sort of please him to see that these sort of injustices uh, happen in the world. Uh, and the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, as we think, is, is well aware of that. So again, um, life without God is not fair. On one extreme, you've got you know kids dying in in Africa at a very young age, and then on the other hand, you've got these you know billionaires, um, uh, particularly in the US, I guess, um, that uh, live on the opposite extreme of, of the spectrum. And that's of course despite humanism. So humanism says you know everyone's born equal, but of course we know that the evidence in in reality, the theory is good. But the evidence is that this is not, not actually true. Um, we're born with equal worth as humans, but we're definitely not born into equal circumstances. And that really, you know, these sort of contrasting ideas between, you know, that baby in the, in the previous picture and, and Jeff Bezos in this picture, it really makes a mockery of the idea that all people are born equal uh, and according to humanism. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says, well, their life is still vain. There might, might be a fun life in, in, in this world, um, but it's still vain. It's still empty. Life without God is empty. So he says in uh, chapter 4 and verse 8, there's one alone, there is not a second. Yea, he hath not. So this person might be have no child nor brother, there's, and still there's no end of his labour. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither says he, for whom do I labour and bereave my soul of good? Is pointless, says says uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, and a sort of avail these people that perhaps work uh, uh, to to no end. Uh, so the idea that even those people who have heaps in this life, in terms of material possessions, firstly that doesn't necessarily make them happier people, um, and of course then the idea, the original writer of the idea, you can't take it with you, was the book of Ecclesiastes. Really, that you know, as soon as you die, all that net worth is uh, is worth nothing to you. So again, the idea of life without God is vanity, whether we're born down one end of the scale or up the other end of the scale. And as uh, part of this, I sort of, um, I might uh, stop that. No, I can't stop it. Don't worry. The idea that um, the uh, eye is not satisfied with riches. So Jeff Bezos, for example, his wealth is literally incomprehensible to us, really. So this gives you um, an idea. So if one pixel is worth a thousand bucks and the US median income is 63,000, that's how big that is. A billion is pretty big, that blue block. And then we've got Jeff Bezos and this was when he was only worth only worth 139 billion. 
I think he's cracked over 200 these days. Um, that might half if his divorce goes through and his wife has a reasonable lawyer, I guess. But um, there's this disparity, is pretty obvious, isn't it, between that kid on the first slide and the wealth of Jeff Bezos in, in, uh, in this slide. And to sort of, as I said, you, you can't, we can't even really imagine it. It's not even comprehensible to us. So the disparity is obvious. Some people seem to have it all, um, but some people like that kid you know, from Africa uh, have, have sort of less than nothing. Uh, but it doesn't matter, um, sort of the writer of the Ecclesiastes is saying. Without God, both, uh, both people's lives are meaningless. They are, they are empty. One might be painful and suffering. The other one might be, you know, all fun and games, but uh, it's still empty at the end of the day. So what else does Ecclesiastes tell us? In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11, um, he says that you know time and chance happens to everyone. The battle is not always to the strong. The strongest person doesn't always win the battle. Um, it's not always the wise person who gets bread. It's not always riches to men of understanding, not always favour to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. So it's not always the best person that succeeds. Sometimes it's the worst person that succeeds in life. Uh, and he says, you know, th this also is vanity. So the idea that, you know, um, even, you know, time and chance happens to everyone. It's not people with the, the best skills, not the strongest, not the wisest that always succeed in life. Sometimes it's the worst, uh, weakest, uh, perhaps least wise people that, that seem to win in life. So this idea of karma again, that, you know, you do good, you receive good in this life. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, certainly not a, not a biblical principle. So Ecclesiastes says bad things happen to good people. Um, so in, in uh, chapter 7 and verse 15, I've seen the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness and a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. So, you know, the just man dies early and the wicked man, you know, lives, seems to live forever. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. So again, this idea that, uh, that, that, you know, there's some sort of karmic balancing force in the universe, that's not a biblical principle, not in this life at least. Uh, says the writer of Ecclesiastes. So what is the solution in Ecclesiastes? And he doesn't bring it out right until really uh, close to the end of the book. So he says in chapter 7, uh, verse 11, that wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see, see the sun. So the idea of seeing the sun, again, that refers to people who sort of know about God and, and have some knowledge of him. So the idea of being able to see the sun Wisdom is useful in that case, he says. Uh, for wisdom is a defence, money is defence, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. So here's the key in Ecclesiastes is, is life. And you're only going to get that by having wisdom that sees the sun. In other words, godly wisdom. Um, and that's the solution to the vanity of life. So Ecclesiastes surveys all of human existence from the lowest to the highest and back down again. And he says, those that are under the sun, uh, life is vanity. Whether it's a good life or a bad life, it's, it's pointless. Even the suffering is pointless. We might see, try and say, well, you know, surely there's some value in, in someone suffering more than someone else. Ecclesiastes says, no, that's you know, time and chance. That, that's just what happens. Um, Ecclesiastes 12, right at the end of the book, he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's his conclusion? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God shall bring every work into judgment with, and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So his answer is you've got to see the sun. You've got to find out about God and his purpose and that's what gives your life meaning. And the only source that we have to do that is, is of course, the Bible. So we're going to come to the New Testament now. We're going to look at what God does want. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll start there. And we see these three, so when we look at this idea of vanity in Ecclesiastes, what does God actually want from us? What do we learn from the Bible about um, what he wants from us? And 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and verse 13. So three essential characteristics that God is after from us. And he says here, uh, this is Paul writing to um, the believers in Corinth, and he says, Now by faith, hope, and charity, or love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So for those that know about God, um, the question is, well, what does he want from us? Uh, and it, the answer is he wants these three characteristics from us, faith, hope, and love. So we saw that Ecclesiastes sort of divides the world into those who have seen the sun, who know about God and the you know, vast majority of humanity who don't know about him. Now we're going to concentrate on those who, who do know about God. What does God want from them and how does suffering play a part in this? So what does this have to do with suffering? Well, essentially, these three characteristics are really built in adversity. They're built in suffering. They're built in adversity for people who know God. So this really gives a purpose to suffering, as, as we're going to see shortly, because suffering builds these three key characteristics that God wants from us, faith, hope, and love. So keep those uh, three uh, words in mind and then turn back to our reading that we had uh, from Romans chapter 8. So I think uh, Kieran said that he likes Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 was... Um, I really love this section of Romans too. Uh, and when I was a, you know, many, many years ago, an angsty teenager, sort of, you know, thinking that life was pointless and I could be angry with everyone and everything, then putting um, Romans together with um, Ecclesiastes really uh, answers a lot of those questions that we might have as sort of, you know, angry young teenagers. which we all were once. So, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Um, so, the idea of um, this enmity, so, he's sort of, I just want to bring out the point that he's sort of referring back to creation ideas here. So, in verse uh, 6 of Romans chapter 8, for to be carnally minded is death. So, the result of carnally minded, so um, sinful mindedness is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity between uh, against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be. So these ideas are all from Genesis aren't they? The law of God uh, enmity against him um, and, and so they're all concepts found back in Genesis chapter 3 particularly. So um, what does Paul say? So Paul uh, begins with references back to what started at creation and, of course, with Adam's sin. 
And then in verse 18, which we started uh, our reading with, he starts talking about suffering and he says that um, the suffering now uh, is happening, of course. We know it's uh, happening, but there are better things to come. And he says there, I know the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So we suffer now, he says, but there are better things coming. Um, and in fact, in verse 19 and 20, he says the entire creation. So King James confusingly uses the word creature here occasionally, um, but other translations uh, use it a bit better and they just use the word creation. So the entire creation, not just people who have, have um, a relationship with God, but the entire creation is subject to vanity. So that vanity word comes straight from Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? The idea that every, life generally is vain without a knowledge of God. Um, the entire creation is subject to vanity. So, and there's a reason for it, he says, this vanity, this suffering that the creation undergoes is so that it hopes for something better. So verse 19, um, the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the Son of God. So the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who are subject to the same in hope. So that one of those key characteristics God wants from us is hope, hope for something better. So this is really important in understanding uh, about suffering that it is to engender in us hope for something better. If life was perfect now for everyone, um, and us included, then we wouldn't hope for something better. We wouldn't desire, we wouldn't have the need or the urge to turn to God, would we? We'd say we're perfectly happy with our existence now. Um, there's no need for me to turn to you, God. I'm, I'm happy with the way things are. But the vanity of life, um, the suffering in life, is actually something that motivates us to look to God for a solution. And in fact, as he says in verse 20, the whole creation will improve when Christ uh, returns and reigns on earth, including you know, all the environmental degradation that has gone on uh, over the centuries. Then in verse 24, he says we are saved by hope. So this hope that the, um, the vanity that we're subject to engenders in us is actually saving us. Um, so that's really important. So that idea of faith and hope and love, uh, we are saved by these things. And God wants us to realise that we can't save ourselves. So humanity doesn't have the answer, um, but God wants us to hope for something better. Uh, then in verse 25, he says that hope develops patience. So that's another characteristic that God wants from us. Hope, uh, if we're hoping for something, if we get it immediately, uh, we won't be patient. But God wants us to be patient and he wants us to develop that in our lives as well. We wouldn't develop it if it was all rosy um, in our lives. Um, and finally, in verse 28, right, what conclusions did you come to in my absence? Um, sorry? Yes, suffering. Yes, yes, exactly. So I think in sort of summary from um, Romans chapter 8, and we'll have a look at Romans chapter 9 a little bit too, so God wants us to hope for something better. So the idea that um, humanity generally, the creation, the entire creation is, is subject to suffering um, and, and pain is so that we look for something, uh, something better to come. And without that, we wouldn't have that, the same motivation to do that.
We're going to look at shortly Romans 9, which talks about the idea that God knows who's going to call, respond to his call of salvation and that God chooses who you'll save uh, and that God gives life. He doesn't owe anyone salvation and that, of course, the humanistic approach is that God sort of owes, somehow owes us salvation. Um, now, the, the contrast, of course, is traditional Christianity, which sort of says... Well, if you're not saved, if you don't turn to God, um, even if you don't know about God, then you're going to go straight to hell and you're going to burn for eternity. Now, that is un- injustice, isn't it? The idea that um, you know, even if you lived you know, a few hundred years ago in you know, Central Africa or China, had no chance of reading the Bible, um, God would condemn you to hellfire for eternity. That, that is a distinct injustice, but that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God gives us life Uh, He calls some people, he doesn't call other people, uh, but he certainly doesn't condemn anyone who doesn't get called uh, to eternal uh, suffering forever. Now, uh, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So the idea of verse, um, you know, Paul's already talked about that the pain and suffering of, of this present life, and yet... He is able to recognise in verse 28 that all things work together for good. And now it's not necessarily going to be good in this life, is his point. A life is not always going to be sweet, but in the long run, it will be. So it might not be until you know the, the next life, perhaps, um, but a life will be good uh, in the long run for those who respond uh, to God. Uh, the goodness, the godliness is, is rewarded in the, in the life to come. Romans chapter 9 is this idea that, that salvation is at God's discretion. So again, that the human-centric idea is that everyone should have a chance of salvation that, and the implication of that is that God owes us salvation. So in, uh, over the page in Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, he talks about these two brothers that are born, um, uh, Esau and Jacob, I think it is, and he says they're not even born, they haven't done any good or evil, um, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So God selected them. He knew exactly how these boys would turn out, of course. Um, but before they've done any good or evil, he's, he's selected one of them to be saved and the other one not to be saved. And Paul raises the, the question then in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is this sort of unrighteous? Is this unfair? God forbid, no way. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's my choice, says God, to save. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's my choice. It's my will here, God says. Because the alternative is that somehow we are saving ourselves. So Paul points out, so then it is not of him that willeth or, or of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So it's not our skills. It's not our whatever, our own righteousness that's going to save us. It's God choosing us. And it's amazing blessing that that uh, happens. Um, but it is God's choice. It's nothing to do with who we are as people or how good we are at anything, um, but, but God that, that shows mercy. Because the alternative is that somehow we might think, well, you know, perhaps it is partly because I'm such a, a cool guy uh, that God chose me to be saved over someone else. Paul says, no, it's nothing to do with you. God has selected you and you should feel amazingly blessed that he has done that because it's God's choice. So that's 
God-centric thinking as opposed to human-centric thinking, which says, well, you know, God really owes us all salvation. God doesn't owe us anything. He's given life. Um, he's given people, the, you know, most of humanity life. They live that life as best they can or as worst they can. It's up to them. They've got, you know, free will. Um, but at the end of the day, if they're sinners, if God hasn't forgiven their sins, then they die. Uh, and that's the end of it, certainly not condemning them then for an eternity to uh, burning in hell. So God wants us to acknowledge that salvation is entirely from him. It's entirely his choice, entirely his mercy that, that uh, saves us and uh, that we rely on, on him for entirely and uh, this is the way he does it. He doesn't have to give humanity, he doesn't owe humanity anything, let alone, uh, you know, eternal salvation. He chooses out of his mercy to give it uh, to whom he chooses to give it. Uh, just have a look at First Peter chapter 1, because um, once again this is the emphasis on those, one of those three characteristics uh, that God wants from us, faith, hope and love. So First Peter uh, chapter 1. And verse uh, 6, well, let's start in verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's, well, they're working towards salvation, wherein, in verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, so rejoicing in their salvation, but, says Peter, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or manifold trials, lots of trials. Uh, lots of suffering, in other words. In verse 7, he says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom the, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So that's the point of faith. You know, as I said, one of those three characteristics that God wants from us uh, is the salvation of our souls, is our salvation. So that we've got some pretty key words here, the idea of temptations or, or trials, pressure that uh, we get put under, suffering in this life. Um, so we've highlighted trial in that verse and then faith, of course. So Peter's saying that Undergoing trials, undergoing suffering, undergoing you know pressure, actually builds your faith uh, and your love. Um, whom having not seen, ye love as well. He says. So those two of those three characteristics we've already seen hope highlighted in in Romans chapter eight. The other two characteristics and love is in Romans chapter eight as well. But here we've got two of them: um, um, of faith and love in this section in Peter. And his point is that like gold gets made more pure by going through fire, so he's saying that trials strengthen our faith. It doesn't make it weaker, it makes it stronger. We might think, well, you know, trials from God, you know, we're going to use up our reserves of faith in facing those trials. Peter says, no, just as fire makes gold more pure, so going through trials, suffering, pressure, um, it's not going to use up your faith. It's actually the process by which God builds your faith. So First Peter is really saying that suffering builds faith in us, just as we've seen that suffering builds uh, hope and love. 
Um, so faith isn't built on unmitigated good. Once again, if our lives were all rosy, if we thought everything was going smoothly, that's not something that builds faith in God. That's just how human nature works. Um, in fact, we'd be much more self-reliant if, if we thought that everything was going you know, rosily uh, and all good. So faith is not built on unmitigated good. It's actually built through, through suffering. And suffering builds empathy, it builds love. So if we um, undergo some suffering ourselves, then we can empathise uh, with other people who suffer as well. So again, that idea of, of love is also built up through suffering as well. So those key characteristics that God wants, faith, hope and love, they're all increased by suffering. Uh, and that's the purpose of it for people who have, as you know, um, Ecclesiastes puts it, seen the sun. There's a, there's a point to this suffering in their case. For the vast majority of humanity, it's, it's uh, time and chance, fairly random, um, consequence in a general sense of, of Adam and Eve's sin. But for people who have seen the sun, people who are uh, responding to the call of the gospel, then there is a purpose for this suffering. And Hebrews makes the same point in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, so um, you can turn that one up if you want, but he talks about God treating us as a parent does a child. So there's some, uh, what he calls in the King James, chastisement, uh, some discipline of children. Um, and, and again, that uh, builds holiness. So in this case, at the end of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, this section we've got on the screen, he says, for our natural parents verily after for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but God does it for our profit. It's not just you know, random things happening to us, but it's for our profit. And what's the profit? That we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chasing for the present seems joyous. It's not fun to go through. It's grievous, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the fruits of the Spirit uh, that are described for us in Galatians chapter 5. Unto them which are exercised thereby. So specifically for people who have been called to be God's children, um, God treats us like children. Um, he disciplines us through circumstances, through suffering, because he loves us. It's not just, you know, um, he doesn't act capriciously like, you know, human parents might act out of, you know, anger or some other human trait. It's always out of love in, in, God's, uh, in God's case. I think it's C.S. Lewis says that God, you know, speaks to us through his word, through the Bible, but he shouts to us in our pain. So if he really wants our attention, then sometimes he uses pain and suffering uh, to gain our attention. But it's a positive outcome. So again, the ideas that we've seen in, in Romans, that, that uh, suffering builds hope uh, and builds love, uh, and in Peter it builds faith, uh, we see the same thing here. It builds those fruits of the Spirit uh, by what we go through. It doesn't make it any easier. None of these writers are saying, well, you know, that should make you know, life sweet for you now that you know why you're going through it. It's grievous, says Peter, or it says Hebrews here, but necessary part of um, building those characteristics that God wants. So there's a positive outcome to the suffering that we undergo uh, as uh, part of the call of God. So he talks about living, he talks about holiness, he talks about righteousness, uh, and peace as well. So again, we don't learn much, uh, and we certainly don't learn very quickly when things are going smoothly, but we do learn uh, when things are not going so well. So um, 
what have we uh, sort of in summary learnt from uh, tonight? So hopefully we've seen a few things. Firstly, in, in a general sense, that humanity's suffering is a result of humanity's sin. It's not, you know, God, um, it was Adam and Eve who, who sinned and, and suffering came as a result of that. God you know, sort of had the world set up as very good, but uh, human sin brought suffering uh, with it. In a specific sense, so that's in a general sense. We're not saying that, you know, our specific sins bring specific punishments. And in fact, that's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And we saw that from, uh, hopefully, from Job. So suffering is not a direct result of specific sin. That's not how God operates. God wants to save us, but he doesn't owe us salvation. So that's a really important principle. And again, goes against that sort of human-centric thinking uh, that we started out with. Uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that time and chance happens to all, whether we've you know, seen uh, particularly those who have not seen the sun, those who live under the sun, the general you know, humanity, time and chance happens to them all. Some will get you know, $200 billion and some will be born into poverty in Africa. Um, in a general sense, suffering makes us hope for something better. And I think this is probably the key thing about suffering in the world in a general sense, that suffering makes us hope for something better. Again, if everything was going well, we wouldn't turn to God. We wouldn't ever say, you know, God save us from what we're going through. And we wouldn't ever be made better people because faith, hope and love are built from suffering. So suffering makes us hope for something better. And that applies to, you know, people who have been called and people who are going to be called as well because they can see that, Without, um, without a God in their lives, without the purpose that God has outlined in his word, then um, the suffering of life is vanity, as it's described in Romans and in um, Ecclesiastes. So in a general sense, suffering makes us hope for something better, and that's why the entire creation is subject to it, as Paul says in Romans. But in a specific sense, for people who have been uh, called, then suffering helps us to build faith and hope and love. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen